When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Music, the show that looks at the money behind the music industry with me, Steve Lamack, and Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge. This week, uh, we have well another selection of new stories to bring you, including new funding for UK musicians and the problems uh, facing UK festivals at the moment. But to start with, four of the top 10 best-selling artists worldwide in 2023 are from... South Korea. That's according to the latest figures just out from the IFPI, uh, the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry. Who who are these people, Stuart? And what is this chart? And how is it compiled? <laughs> who are these people? <laughs> who are so they? this well, the IFPI. They're, they're the labels body. So they're the kind of the body. They, they have a good handle on the data on what's been selling and what's been streaming, and they've built this kind of this methodology, I suppose, of combining streams and sales and kind of weighting it according to the value of them in whatever country. So you're kind of taking in data from across the world, bringing it together and saying, right, who's the best? And it turns out the best, the top artist of the year is Taylor Swift, which I don't think will surprise anyone really, given the last year she's had, uh, second year in a row. But yeah, the big story I think is that there were four K-pop artists in the top 10. So it's, um, so 17 is the second biggest artist in the world last year. Stray Kids were the third, who always remind me of Stray Cats. And that's quite, that's not quite the same as a young K-pop band. Um, so, and this is kind of, this is one of those things where like, these are huge pop artists, but if you're not into K-pop or if you're not into pop, or if you're not young, they're kind of completely could be off your radar and you'd be like, bloody hell, a surprise. But this has kind of been going on for a while. The artists from South Korea have been kind of building their audience through streaming but and I think the key thing here is they're really good at selling albums. Like they still sell a load of albums in South Korea to their super fans. And in this this kind of chart, and we talked last week, didn't we, about the um the UK chart and how sales are still quite important. And that's the case here too. So K-pop bands are doing a really good job of selling albums to their super fans while also being streamed a lot around the world. And that's the result here. And you say around the world. So where are the K-pop bands popular then? How how many countries has their music translated to outside South Korea? Yeah, well, so they're, they're huge in Southeast Asia. They're huge in China, big in Japan, big in all those countries in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Indonesia. So kind of spreading out um, from South Korea. But you're seeing the biggest K-pop bands, the likes of BTS and Blackpink, they're playing stadium tours in the US, they're playing arenas in Europe. Um, so it really has grown and it's grown. I mean, you do see some of these bands doing songs in English, but actually most of their songs are in Korean. So they haven't had to kind of, they haven't had to suddenly translate the music and record in English to kind of find an audience. It's been one of the really interesting things in recent years. Um, and the other thing that's happened um, this week is the IFPI did a separate chart for the um, top albums of the year. And the biggest album last year was by this K-pop band, Seventeen. Um, with Stray Kids at number two. And Taylor Swift had about six in the top 20, so she is still huge. But it's a really interesting moment where 
you're realizing these are these groups they're they're finding a big audience but also they are they are selling a lot of albums which seems like it sounds to us like something from the last phase of the industry when you sold albums rather than being streamed but that's still a big deal uh, for these these artists the IFPI also unveiled their end-of-year singles chart as well. Is is there much difference between album artists and single artists? Um, who's performed well in the singles market? Yeah, well, Miley Cyrus was had a top single last year with Flowers, which again, I think, I mean, it was it was a huge chart hit. That's less of a surprise, I think, for most people. That was it was on top of the charts for weeks and weeks, and it streamed really well, and it was out at the start of the year. Um, but the second biggest single last year was this track, Calm Down, which is by a Nigerian Afrobeats artist called Rema. Um, and it was a remix of this track featuring Selena Gomez. So it was kind of a meeting of one of the biggest stars of Afrobeats from Nigeria with a big Western pop star. But the kind of interesting thing for me is that, whereas in the past you might have the big Western star would be the first artist and they'd be featuring someone from somewhere else. This is like Rema is the lead artist here and Selena Gomez was kind of the guest. So it's kind of turned things around there. And um, and yeah, Calm Down's been a smash, but it, it's, it's one of those hits where it's a bit like, um, well, it's not quite the same, but do you remember when um, Gangnam Style came out from, oh God, I've forgotten his name. <laughs> Who did Gangnam Style? Um, I'm have to Google I, it. I, I, honestly, you're Sorry. asking the you're asking the the wrong man. <laughs> you're asking the wrong generation of uh, Lamac. Uh, if my no. daughter wasn't at school, would have would have that information at our fingertips uh, or off the top of our head. But uh, I had to Google no. it. Sorry, but like that song came out, and this, that was kind of a, that came out. It was a global smash, and then then K-pop kind of broke out in its wake, and then other bands came through. With Afrobeats, it's almost been kind of concertinas into even a shorter time. So Calm Down was a monster hit around the world, but very rapidly there were these other artists from Nigeria making Afrobeats music who are following its wake. And it's, it's kind of where K-pop was maybe two, three years ago, Afrobeats is now. And you're kind of starting to see that reflected in these charts. Mm. This leads us, I mean, it's a slight tangent, but I think it's relevant though, uh, to this story, because it has been reported that, uh, talking of Afrobeats, uh, the Universal Music Group, so Universal, biggest major, of the major labels, are looking to buy a majority stake in an Afrobeats label, the Nigerian uh, label Mavin, which is the same label, that's the label which Rema is signed to, I think. It is, yeah. And they kind of, they first came into my radar last year when they announced that they'd had like 6 billion streams globally of all the music. And and Rema's Calm Down was a big part of that. They also have an artist called Aira Star, and she's getting really big globally too. And so, yeah, this is kind of one of those things that seems to be kind of happening right now, which is that the major global labels are looking at, looking at these countries where they see as the most exciting new sources of music or, or new kind of sources of stars. So India, um, Nigeria, uh, Latin America, and they're going in and saying, right, who's big here? Who do we need to buy? Who can we invest in? How can we make sure that we're part of this? Um, so, yeah, so now Universal Music, it's one of those deals where they have to get regulatory approval, uh, which I don't know how, I don't know if that's something where they're, they're, they're concerned that it might not or whether it's just a formality, but they reckon the deal will close later this year and then Universal will be the majority owner of, see, I was looking, I'm not sure, I think it might be Maven or Mavin. Um, I, I apologise for getting it wrong if it's wrong. But yeah, and this is kind of the, I guess, one of the, the flagship companies that's putting Afrobeats music out. And they're now going to have the weight, the sort of the marketing weight that Universal can throw behind Taylor Swift is could be thrown behind their acts too. So we sort of talk about Calm Down being the second biggest song in the world last year, but who knows what could happen in the next couple of years. Now they're going to have this backing. So that's kind of exciting. So this is, this is Universal just 
noticing the growing commercial potential of Afrobeat and thinking, yeah, would like a share of this, please? Because, I mean, the stats are very impressive. And also, you were talking about how K-pop has uh, ventured further and further into other territories. If you look at the um, interest in Afrobeat, that's spread right, spreading far and wide now, isn't it, to, to all through Europe? Yeah, and everyone's trying to claim it, which is quite fun. So last year, Spotify did a big announcement saying, oh, did we tell you how popular Afrobeats is on our service? Um, I think it was streamed 13 and a half billion times on Spotify in 2022. And that had risen quite a lot, so it could be much bigger last year. And yeah, I think they were saying the biggest city for those streams was Lagos, which is in Nigeria, which obviously is the heartland of the music. But London was second biggest and Paris the third. So you're kind of, again, getting this, just this growth. And, And I think what you see is you see the music but you see the music being listened to around the world. And then you see the artists kind of playing concerts. So in London, there have already been concerts at the O2 by Davido. Like Afrobeats artists are coming over here and playing enormous concerts to kind of sold out audiences. Um, and then what happens next is you see the West, you'll see the Western artists going, well, can we collaborate with you? And you'll see the Western labels going, well, how can we invest in this? How can we sign artists? So it's kind of one of those things that feels like a, it feels like a rolling stone gathering pace, you know, it's kind of picking up and, and you're going to see more, I think you'll see more deals and you'll see more artists going from kind of, no one's heard of them outside um, Nigeria to very quickly having a massive streaming hit and interest from around the world. So it's, again, one of the most interesting things happening, I think, at the moment in the industry. Uh, next, uh, here's a worrying stat, if you like going to a festival, uh, as there are, and you may have seen, I think The Guardian did a piece on this, uh, there are growing concerns surrounding the forthcoming festival season, as at least nine festivals that were scheduled for this year have already been cancelled, uh, including uh, some quite long-running festivals, um, one or two you know, reasonably significant ones, Stand and Calling uh, is off this year, Blue Dot is having a fallow year and all this comes on top of an estimated 36 festivals which were called off last year uh, I contacted John Rostron about this John is uh, the chair of the AIF that's the Association of Independent Festivals uh, who said and quite recently I mean out of uh, some of these festivals the reasons why some festivals uh, either close or cancel uh, is well amongst them some festivals as John was saying some of them just come to a natural end The the people who are running them decide uh, that the festivals run its course for whatever reason. Uh, Some get cancelled due to extreme weather, which obviously can affect the sites and whether they can open. And some get uh, pulled because of poor ticket sales, because the lineup just didn't capture people's imagination. Which, And I think actually this partly answers a question of yours, Stuart, about whether the number of festivals pre-pandemic was starting to outstrip actual demand for festivals yeah i didn't i sort of felt bad about asking this question really because it sounds quite rude but i do remember those reports before the pandemic saying britain's amazing we've got all these boutique festivals springing up we've got hundreds it's brilliant this is marvelous and i i do sometimes wonder okay but was it possible that some of that there were too many or there were some that were kind of good for a year um but then the pandemic was difficult i think because i think people when you break someone's habit of going somewhere maybe they don't come back. I think a lot of businesses and a lot of different things have experienced that, haven't they? Where you've, I mean, I had it with music industry conferences, like a couple I used to go to. And when I had a break for a couple of years, I was like, actually, I didn't really want to go there. And right. you, you stop, you know. Right. 
But yeah, I, I, I do wonder. I mean, what do you think? Because I, I feel like I think. I mean, I think it was starting to feel a bit more precarious. The whole festival circuit. I mean, particularly probably about five. I mean, between five and ten years ago. The, I mean, the festival season was becoming really quite saturated. I mean, it felt like everyone who had a field or a or a forest, or in some cases a park, or you know, just a back yeah. garden. Everyone seemed to be putting on a festival, uh, and obviously, not all of them uh, would would have survived. But I think this is this is something else entirely, though, because I mean, <laughs> to use the extreme weather analogy, this is the perfect storm for festivals. Which I mean, it would, I mean, caused initially by, uh, according to the AIF, uh, a ha- firstly a hangover from the pandemic, but then that. Uh, mixed with the financial implications of Brexit. So if you go back, so everything's cancelled during COVID. There's no festivals, which means there's no work for the people who are involved in the festival. So there's no work for the companies who provide the lights and the staging and the fencing and the toilets. But there's also there's no work for the people who are employed by the festivals, the you know, security staff, uh, sound lighting engineers, bar staff. Uh, and of course, obviously, a lot of these people, they're all freelancers. I mean, the whole festival circuit relies very heavily on freelancers who end up during this time being utterly skint because they don't have the option of furlough. Uh, so on the one hand, you have companies who would provide equipment going bust, uh, while some people who work at a festival, I mean, they simply lots of people just left the industry to go and do something else. So we lost, as I say, we lost gear and we lost a lot of quite experienced festival staff. And then on top of that, uh, you had Brexit, which also has, has a profound effect on the festival supply chain. Because, I mean, for instance, John was telling us that some of the businesses who rent out the kit you need to put on a festival, some of them just up sticks and move to Europe because from there you can easily move lights and stages and PAs around the rest of Europe from country to country. That's easy. But the problem is the knock-on effect for us is that but now they're based in Europe. It means that it's much more expensive for UK festivals who are having to hire in all their production gear back into the UK. So if you have that and then you come out of lockdown, once we come out of lockdown, then the problems really start almost immediately because festivals have set their ticket prices at um, at a 2020 level. They've, they've obviously costed to put on a festival in 2020. And many of those festivals sell out, but they don't happen until two years later, by which time all the costs have rocketed by, on average... 30%. So you have the ticket price for 2020, but it doesn't co- cover the cost of putting on a festival in 2022. And uh, as John mentioned to us, a festival's profit is usually in the last 10% of the tickets, says John. So so events may have sold out, but still ended up losing money. And uh, according to John, often quite a lot of money. And so they're losing money by putting on the festival they promised to put on. On top of that, by this point, you have to add in the fact that, you know, they're dragging around various debts from the pandemic, you know, your bounce back loans and things. And uh, they've also used up all their savings, all their liquidity. So they get through that year and then think, well, we'll, we'll just start again. So all the festivals prepare for 2023. They rebudget. They set their prices for 2023 at something like an average rise of 15 to 20 
percent i think was how much festival tickets went up for 2023 just to try and mitigate you know against some of the other cost rises involved in putting a festival on and everyone thinks well hopefully this will be fine but then of course inflation rockets the cost of living crisis hits the supply chain is still unstable and you're lurching from one difficulty to another not to mention i mean just in terms of costs here's a stat which uh, john told us he said that he'd spoken to someone a fortnight ago who, who were talking about actually building a festival site because obviously you've got to stage the whole thing haven't you? you've got to build a whole site and the cost of putting everything together of building the festival in 2019 was five hundred thousand pounds the cost for building the same festival site for getting everything ready from stages to toilets the cost of building a site in 2023 was nine hundred thousand pounds so it's almost double uh in across four years and that's a massive increase to to write into your budget i think and um, so the landscape all of a sudden is looking very scary and uh, this was john's uh, part of john's conclusion john said he said you know last year Ticket sales were still very strong, uh, maybe not as steady as usual, obviously mostly because of the cost of living. But it did mean that, you know, some dips in ticket sales combined with carrying the losses um, brought some festivals to an end or will bring festivals to an end from here on in because, as Don says, they just can't get by week to week to make it to the summer. They're just running out of cash and they can't they can't meet the stricter payment terms that some supply chains uh, some supply chain companies or some artists in some cases uh, they can't meet their payment demands so john's john's predicting uh, and this is a direct quote many more festivals will go there's dozens maybe hundreds of events all likely to fail either before they take place or they'll close after their 2024 events. We know of the we know of uh, ones who've already announced that 2024 will be their last event. What we don't know is just how many are going to come to an end without notice. Um, and that's where we are. And as I said, you know, I mean, obviously in response, what can what can be done to help? When what are the AFI? Um, what would they like to happen in way of support? And I think you mentioned uh, this to us earlier in the week. It's a, I mean, it's a, a, a VAT cut would be very helpful i think um but john's he's quite pragmatic about it he's saying look there probably won't be another pandemic there won't be another brexit so things will eventually calm down but it, it's going to take a few successive summers for you know staff to come back and for costs to settle so festivals just need a break which is why the afi are asking government to lower vat on ticket sales from 20 percent to five percent for three years just to give festivals the time they need to to make it through that period to give them some breathing space um and that means obviously the festivals be able to put more of your ticket money um into putting the festival on and paying the artists uh because you know that fat fat on a fat on a gig at 20 percent take some of the money away from the people who are putting the festival on and you know our vat rate is for festivals is higher than the rest of europe i think france is i think vat on tickets is five and a half percent 
Germany's 7%. Uh, so a VAT cut is what they're going to be campaigning for. And then John says, um, you know, if we do this, you know, the market, it, it won't be catastrophically hit. The supply chain will slowly build back. Things in Europe will steady. And um, he says, and then we'll be back to something like a new normal, which seems like the best possible outcome, I guess, at this point. But it's it's a huge problem. Yeah, I suppose two things about it worry me. I suppose one is like every festival cancelled means artists getting cancelled, losing out on fees, and that's worrying. Because I think festival season has been a really historically big, for many bands, hasn't it? It's been a really important part of their earnings is knowing you're playing a bunch of festivals. But also I think these festivals, like people might go, oh, well, you know, but Glastonbury is still here and Reading and the big ones are still going. But it's these smaller boutique festivals that often, they can take risks, can't they? They can put bands on bigger stages. It's often where like an artist will get a chance to play a big stage to a big crowd and sort of prove themselves worthy of that stage at one of the big places. So they're, they're kind of, it feels like a feeder system. Like if some of these go down, you're going to have less diversity in who's getting put on stages. And it feels like they're, they're, they're important, even though the big festivals still might sell out quickly. These, these kind of, this circuit is, is important, I think. Yeah, I'd be interested to know, there's a few things I'm quite interested to know in terms of the impact of artist fees and what artists are demanding, particularly headline artists, given that if you're worth a lot of tickets, if you are a, you know, a big festival headliner or you're an in-demand festival headliner, just how much you can charge and how much that's impacted on, you know, the economics of a festival. But I think, I mean, I think obviously the, you know, there will be the strongest festivals will survive. And that's not, I don't think that's necessarily just, you know, all the big ones. I think it's all about whether you've found your audience, I think. Take a festival like, I don't know, End of the Road Festival, which has a very loyal following um they've you know they've pitched their festival and that's quite a but it's a boutique festival but it's and it's brilliantly curated and people have built a real trust in it in the same way that you know they can sell tickets uh, without putting the lineup out you know there will be people who will be booking for the following year as they leave the festival site because they trust in it so much so festivals like end of the road more beautiful days i mean i'm not saying it will be easy for them but they at least have a very supportive fan base i think um and you can be open with them can't you you can you can talk yeah. to your audience and say look these are the costs they can be open and just talk about this is why we're putting the price up this is what we're trying to do and, and if you've got that kind of strong community they'll they'll support you in that so yeah there's definitely hope there uh, if you have any of uh, your own thoughts on this story, or you might even, if you're, if you're listening and you might you might even run a festival or be involved in a festival and you might have your own take on this, uh, do drop us a line and we'll follow up in future weeks. Uh, but thank you very much to John at uh, the AIF for walking us through the background to that story. That's much appreciated. Now, when we started this podcast, we always said we wanted to bring you some insight into the music industry's finances, but also useful tips or information for musicians or anyone else who's just starting out in the industry. Well, here's one for you, particularly if you're a performer and you're looking for funding. Uh, there are some new ways UK artists can get financial support. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of those good news stories that come along so often that there are these schemes. And I think we talked about one recently, didn't we? We talked about the MEG scheme, the music exports growth scheme, and some of the artists supported by that. But yeah, so this week, there's a program called Power Up, which has been going for a while now. And it's it's focused on black musicians and industry professionals. So it's musicians on one side and also people who are wanting to kind of work in the industry. And they have grants of up to 15,000 quid, but also training and mentorship. And they've got a big support network. Um and I think some of the people who've gone through it, Nova Twins, the band have gone through this. I think Jam Supernova also went through it. So people have gone on this this particular program and they've then gone into the industry and kind of had success. So it's a good a good thing. And it's just opened up applications for its next, next, uh, next uh, what do you call them, cohort, I suppose. Um, so people can Google PRS Foundation Power Up. Uh, and I think it's still a 14th of March and it's just a really good thing. And, and it's also uh, focused on kind of diversity and inclusion in the industry. Um, it's one of the, one of the programs that does that, which is really good. Um, and there's another one, which is more for songwriters, um, which is less about money and more about kind of professional support. Um, so that's from the Ivers Academy, who are the songwriters body here. And they're holding a songwriting camp in April in London with YouTube Music. And it's going to be, again, like mentorship and networking and education, but also sitting down to write songs together. I'm always fascinated by songwriting camps. Like the idea of, I think this is 12 people. You just put them together and say, we'll write some songs. You know, have a <laughs> see what comes out. I'm fascinated by that creative process. Um, and that's something that's happening in, in April. And people can find it by Googling Ivers Academy Songwriting Camp. So there's two things, I think, for people who are doing stuff. Yeah, I, t- I think they're quite good. I mean, that's that's quite interesting. I think particularly if, I mean, I know some of the music colleges have songwriting courses and, you know, some of the tutors have written some very popular songs in their in their time. I think Jake Schillingford on My Life Story uh, was down at um, Beam in Brighton for a while and, you know, was um, helping to explain the craft of songwriting and nurture the way people express themselves. And I think that's that's pretty interesting. I like the whole mentorship type of thing, even if it's just really, I mean, things that sound really obvious. Uh, I remember somebody telling me once that they were at, um, they were being mentored by, I won't say who it was, um, but uh, a singer and a, a singer-songwriter, uh, and they played one of their songs in front of said singer-songwriter who just just told them they were standing all wrong. They couldn't possibly, because they were bent over their guitar, they couldn't possibly sing properly. So the first thing they had to, t- the first piece of advice was just stand up straight stand and up sing straight, out. Stand up straight, man. Yes, yeah. yeah, stand up straight. <laughs> um, but that's interesting. So it's the Power Up scheme, uh, if you want to Google that, uh, or uh, the Ivers Academy. Uh, the deadline for Power Up for 14th of March, the deadline, 8th of March, uh, for that uh, Ivers Academy songwriting camp. Uh, talking, <laughs> talking of songs which have gone on to be successful, we have recently touched on the news that quite a few major artists, uh, most recently uh, Rod Stewart, uh, have been selling off their back catalogue of songs. Uh, now we have another major artist who's been selling off, not songs, but some stuff, quite a lot of stuff. Elton John has auctioned off 900 items, which were originally valued at around $10 million, but it all went for a lot more in the end. You've been watching this, Stuart? I have. I'm fascinated by it. So I think it was about, well, nearly $14.5 million in the end, and maybe there's some more stuff to sell this week. I think as we're recording, it's carrying on. But yeah, it was Christie's, so proper auction house. They didn't just stick it on eBay or, um, or next door. It was a proper auction. 
Apparently, yeah, more than more than three and a half thousand people registered to bid, which is, I mean, I think if you're if any any musician is going to be auctioning off their stuff, like Alton John is one of the best, surely, because he's it, the stage costumes he's gathered, the, the, you know, he's a he's a collector of art and all kinds of stuff. So, um, so yeah, it's been it's been quite an entertaining sale by the sounds of it as well in terms of what's available. So what what was on the what was on the list? What what sort of things were um, part of? Uh, the catalog for sale um okay so silver leather platform boots uh 94 grand to you sir right um a neon horny in capitals question mark exclamation mark sign from his las vegas residency went for just under 27 grand um a collection and i love this a collection of ruby colored versace porcelain dinnerware with the face of medusa on it Went for fifty five thousand, which I, I was looking at that in the shop, but I just ended up going for you know basic IKEA stuff in the end. But it's, and then I think that the top thing was, um, uh, is I think it's a black nineteen ninety Bentley Continental two door convertible. And I know absolutely nothing about cars, but I do know when I look at some cars, I'm like, oh, that's a nice car, that's a pr- properly nice. Um, so that's my vote on that properly nice car, and that went for four hundred and forty one thousand. So. So yeah, a lot of money raised and a lot of, in a way, just like a, a snapshot of his career as well. So a, a kind of amazing, amazing kind of um, chance to kind of see all the stuff he's got. I want to say like the stuff I've gathered in my career is all tit, but the stuff out in John's gathered is all really interesting and quirky and well-designed. So yeah, it was a fun, fun sale. It's not your average spring clean, this, is it? I think we <laughs> we need it's not it's not your yard sale it's not your average yard sale i tell you what uh, talking of um cars and elton john uh if we just got time it reminds me of a story that tom robinson of the tom robinson bands my six music colleague uh of late um tom did quite a lot of songwriting co-writing coming back to another thing uh with elton john they wrote a lot of songs together at one point and tom used to go round to elton's house but on this particular occasion tom tom recalls so he drives he drives up the drive i can't remember what car tom had but it was something like a second hand i don't know triumph Vauxhall viva it was it was a very very down at heel second-hand car uh which um uh elton john meets as he's standing outside his garage waiting for tom arrive and apparently El- elton just takes the mickey out of tom's car for about five minutes before <laughs> before turning around and pointing at his garage his big double garage and he says tom, tom come come with me come with me i've got something to show you I've got something to show you and he goes to the garage and there are two massive flight cases so you know flight cases that you usually have guitars in it's what you move stuff around in on on tour um and there's two so it's two big flight cases with elton john written on the side and he went what's what do you think's in there and uh tom makes a couple of guesses now it's laughing okay no 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 and he opens so he takes off uh the side panel of one of these flight cases to reveal it's just a lot of drawers inside the sort of thing that you know guitar techs have loads of bits and bobs in or you know if you if you've got a shed and you keep nails and screws and different drawers so it looks like that from the outside just a bit nicer let's go have another guess i don't i really don't know and he opens up the drawer and yes all of elton john's glasses he has quite oh, no. cased really all of his glasses 
and to take on tour. He's got a hundred pairs of glasses in two flight cases, which he will take around the world with him. There you go. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Do you know, he seems like, I mean, I, it's hard to know when you, but he seems like he's having a marvelous retirement. He's spending more time with his family. He did that amazing Glastonbury gig. He still loves music, doesn't he? I, I've sort of listened to his show on Apple Music. You know, he still loves new music and is like voraciously hungry to hear new bands. Like he seems like he's having a brilliant time. Like uh, apart from the wealth, which I'm not going to make. Like he's kind of one of my models for retirement is how you, this is how you, how you spend that time, you know, and sell up all your stuff and have a nice time and um, listen to music and we'll see, carry your flight cases around. Yeah, we'll, we'll see you at Christie's then, Stuart, in about, what, 20 years' time? <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think what I've got here. I've got a I've got a mug with some llamas on it that might go for a, a couple of quid. <laughs> that's that's the limit of my um, my merchandise. But yeah, I think but it's good. It's good. I, I love those sales, and I think I bet we see more of this because I think if you think about that 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 kind of star, there must be people who've got garages full of amazing stuff from their careers. So. Yeah, we'll see more of them doing it. It is quite, I mean, it's quite a big business. We should actually, we should dedicate some more time to this. That if there's a top 10 of um, memorabilia or, I mean, musical instruments, they fetch, a, they fetch a bob or two, don't they? We should do that at some point. I did talk to someone fairly recently about this idea of legacies. And he was saying like every new artist, every young band, keep everything. Like have somewhere you keep everything. Because at some point in the future, if you do well, you're going to want to have that, you're going to have that early ticket stubs, your guitars, you know, keep everything somewhere. You know, I think they said parents garage would be usually be the place. But I think even if you're not going to be Elton John, keeping all the stuff from the earliest point of your career is a really sensible thing to do for the future because you never know what's going to be a nest egg. Uh, that's almost it from us for this week we should finish though shouldn't we by saying congratulations to pet needs uh if you were listening to the last episode uh, the colchester band pet needs were attempting to make the top 40 album chart with a how should we describe it, a concerted onslaught of uh, gigs social media <laughs> postings and uh, an inventive release campaign which featured 12 different versions of their album on vinyl just remind us of the concept there were 12 different sleeves, 12 yeah, different records. Yeah, 12 different sleeves. But you could put, if you bought them all, you could put them together into an artwork. Um, so, yeah, and I think we were, we were talking, that's becoming a, a more common thing, just different formats of your album. Uh, and, yeah, and like you said, they backed it all up. They were putting the work in. They were gigging up and down the country, and they were doing social media and doing all kinds of stuff. So, how, yeah, how did it go for them? Did they – well, it was bottom it, of the pops, it, wasn't it? They wanted to be top 40. Yeah, uh, probably near the bottom end of the top 40. They did better than that. In fact, they did – they ended up much higher than I thought they would. I thought they might uh, manage to hang inside the top 40 come the end of the week. But no, intermittent, fast-living, uh, Pet Needs' new album entered the UK top 40 album chart at number seven. So, well done, Pet. Pet Needs in the top 20 album chart. Blur, nominated for two Brit Awards. Colchester, it's the new Seattle. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Uh, That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please do subscribe to us in uh, whatever podcast app you use. And uh, if you have a moment, a review would be lovely. Uh, And, of course, if you have a question which you'd like answered on the show, email us at Stuart. The Price of Music Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much again, everybody. Uh, Till next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.